Hi, this is the Tempter Podcast where we discuss embedded Linux, IoT development, and anything else we might find interesting. Your hosts today are Kim Raj and Cliff Brake. Hi, Kim. Hey, Cliff. How are you doing today? Yeah, yeah, pretty well. How about you? Doing well, thank you. Good. So today we're, we want to talk about build acceleration and, mm-hmm. and the various topics around that. And Kim, Kim has a lot of experience in build systems. So I guess the fundamental problem is builds are sometimes slow. And, and this is, um, you know, we, we've seen build times for, for applications up over a half hour sometimes, at least I have personally. And of course, system builds, where we build the entire system, like in Yocto, on on a slower machine, those can go for, for a good part of a day. On a fast machine, they're usually, I don't know, what do you say, Kim, an, an hour or something? Or what's what's your machine do? Yeah, some something like an hour. Like an hour. Mm-hmm. Less than an hour is, is lucky. Yeah. So this is a big problem because when we develop we want feedback and if our builds are slow then that slows down our, our feedback loop which is the, is the general problem we're trying to solve. So anyway maybe we could start with why are builds slow? Yeah <laughs> a million dollar question. Isn't it? <laughs> so um, builds actually you know if you if you look back people build software um, you know everything in a monolith, right? So you, you build the whole thing together, and and uh, and over a period of time, software has grown by leaps and bounds, um, and it has kept up to date with you know your hardware in the sense that you know you you basically have fast hardware, but then you have more software nowadays to build, right? So you have complex applications, you know, huge platforms. So if you were to compare linear, uh, you know, a monolithic build to monolithic build, probably we aren't any much better than we were, you know, say 10, 20 years ago. We are still <laughs> spending so much time. Yeah, that, that's amazing that my computer is not much faster than my Commodore 64. I, yeah, right. I, I mean, it, it is a lot better. I shouldn't <laughs> say that. But, you know, the Commodore 64 was a perfectly usable machine. So Yes, yes absolutely. So I think... It's just that we are building more and we are building faster, but we are building a lot more too. So, mm-hmm. so this eternal problem of build acceleration has been there, um, and it will always be there. It might morph into some other immediate challenge, but uh, it it still remains there, primarily because it impacts your productivity. So I think the most important time that you have is the human time, the programmer's time, or you know whoever is interacting with the system. That's time. Mm-hmm. Compute time is important, but it still is a machine time. It's it's a bit cheaper comparatively. So um, there is an economy behind it, and there are other aspects that you mentioned where you know you really want a, a faster feedback and. Uh, the reason for that is also that you know you are basically focused on a on a problem, and if this is coming in your way, you know you are not being effective at that point. So, you know, a, a tighter loop definitely helps you concentrate, solve the problem. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so to come back to your original question, you know, why builds are slow, uh, we have a ton of software to build. Uh, now, really, what really matters is now how do you take this problem and then solve it by various methods, and that's the interesting part uh, that I guess we can talk about. Sure. So are pretty much all, all languages created equal, or, or do you feel that some languages tend more to slower builds than, than other languages? Mm-hmm. I know it's kind of a loaded question, but it, it's... Um, yeah. Yeah, it's a good one. So it's tr- traditionally, as I mentioned, you know, you had uh, you had monolithic builds, mm-hmm. um, and you know you built uh, things in in serial order to a certain extent, and you didn't have a lot more modularity, or at least you didn't do that for whatever reasons. Uh, and then you know what. Some systems like Linux and maybe others did is they kind of made it modular. So I'm speaking from systems point of view. So they said um, you could build this library separately. You could build you know certain pieces of your whole system separately. You can build the kernel separately. You know bootloader separately, and that was great. And, and essentially, it gives you you know a bit of build acceleration if you look at that. So you put sure. your Linux system together. And then you create a smaller loop for, you say, you are a kernel developer, then you can iterate fast on, on just on the kernel piece. Mm-hmm. Um, however, that works in certain scenarios, doesn't work in all scenarios. Secondly, the applications have become a lot bigger nowadays. So, you know, that goes to the previous point where, you know, kernel used to be the biggest component that you had in the system. and and that may not be the case anymore if you look at you know the uh, the apps that we have today you know the browsers we have today and mm-hmm. not one not two but many yeah so, chrome chromium is is huge and takes mm-hmm. um, you have to have like 32 gigabytes of memory in your machine or maybe more to even build it yeah more so, the merrier mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> that's <laughs> so that is probably eclipse the kernel in size and and definitely mm-hmm. in build time yeah, um, absolutely. So there's one thing I've I've been fairly impressed with the Linux kernel. It's a huge code base, you know, millions and millions of lines of code, and it, it does build reasonably fast. You mm-hmm. know, it, it's um, they they seem to have kind of kept a handle on that. And, mm-hmm. and I'll and I'll relate one other experience I had in in an application some years back. We developed in C and. The team wasn't necessarily as careful as we should have been about headers, mm-hmm. who, who included what. And if you tend to be sloppy about that, you have headers that get included in everything because headers mm-hmm. include headers, include headers. And yep. pretty soon, anytime you you touch any module, the whole, the whole system rebuilds and it, it took like a half an hour. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that... I guess the key, one key to making builds fast is don't rebuild stuff you don't need to. And mm. um, yep. build system yep. help a lot with that, but you have to use them right. Or, mm-hmm. You know, especially in C and C++, you have to be mm-hmm. careful with your includes. Yeah. And in general, I think 
it's it's probably a good idea to not have includes include include you know multi level of includes because then it's very hard to understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know if the if the Linux coding standards I haven't worked there in a while, but if they have standards on that, like you know you yes. don't have these global includes that just pull in everything. So yeah, it's it's a good question. I think uh, one of the reason why you know. Linux has, um, relatively speaking, you know, smaller build times given its size. Is um, number one, I think it uses this k-config system. So mm-hmm. you are essentially building a profile of a kernel, right? Most of the time, you are building a kernel for a particular um, device or machine. You are not enabling everything that's in there. Although you might be doing that for you know various other reasons, or, but practically uh, you may not be doing that. So essentially, build what you need, right? Sure. Mm-hmm. So that's one another thing to you know build and build once and use again, like use many times. So that's the, another mantra is like you know, build what you need, and that is actually very true given the cake and fakes you know uh, ability to nicely separate out things, features, mm-hmm. um, it kind of gives you a very polished profile that you're building. The second thing it does good is, you know, the kernel modules. And at a certain point of time, you know, the kernel modules are kind of an independent component within kernel, right? So it's like you're building shared libraries and then you can do a lot more parallelism in there, right? So it, you can basically go ahead and do a lot of parallel builds. Um, and your kernel can still stay smaller, which means your link time for the kernel will not go up, you know, like it is for say WebKit or others, mm-hmm. right? Where you spend minutes in linking. Um, in this case, you don't have to do that because you know you're kind of like split it out into modules and nicely done that way. Because then the programming model also is good because you know. If you are working on a kernel driver, and it can be a kernel module. We're not bothered about kernel prop as much, right? So mm-hmm. You can build that once, and it can just kind of iterate over the kernel module faster, and that's awesome because I think you know that as a developer, you know you are kind of in a kernel space, but within the kernel space, you are still in a module space. So you mm-hmm. know it's really amazing. You might be like working on one or two C files in there, and then just iterating over that. So that's very very powerful. Um, and the other thing, I think you touched on the headers. So uh, there was a report published by uh, some Google engineers, I think, some time ago. I don't know the reference uh, right now, but it was about you know build times for Chromium, the browser, and they figured out that you know the the thirty percent, I believe, maybe you know plus and minus um, of the time you do spend in build is in pre-processing, right? Um, and the pre-processing is essentially basically a compiler bringing in all the headers that you're including and then what they are including and the whole tree and then creating a single compilation unit which is but which is then is compiled into it .o, the object file right so the compilation process the first thing is basically pre-processing uh, which is basically just including the things expanding you know the macros and, and that sort of stuff, and then creating this large pre-processed source, uh, 
file for that particular compilation unit. Now, if you are spending 30% of time, say if, there, if you didn't do any includes, right, everything, you would, you would be like 30% faster just by doing that. Um, now, so you have to have, you know, as you mentioned earlier, is you, you need to have some discipline about your, um, you know, your, your headers and how you organize your, uh, your declarations. And speaking of CC this year, and um, and Chromium uh, did show the Chromium build analysis did show that you know there is a huge penalty you pay for you know doing the recursive includes, and not only the pre-processing part, but now because you are including so many headers, your compile unit is growing, right? And if your compile unit is growing, naturally your compile time will also go up because you know now the the real compiler also has more work to do even though a lot of that work may be thrown away by because it's unused code or stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But in the end, uh, you know, your compile time is very, you know, is, is impacting all the way, right? So, um, so kernel is actually, you know, very careful about headers. So, you know, I remember from my own personal experience where I submitted patches to include a compiler.h and there were like questions asked, oh, you're in including a new header. Why, right? So a discipline that, you know, is a review and an aware community, which is a, you know, a blessing in disguise, mm -hmm. which kind of keeps you in check of saying, hey, you know, I included that header, but I really needed to include like a macro, you know, from the C library. And then you basically, you know, uh, you might have like all dot H or something like that. You know, I've seen some like proprietary projects where they have, you know, certain super include files of that nature. Yeah. So you include that file in a source and everything is taken care of, right? Mm -hmm. But that is actually where the problem starts. Exactly, right. And it's important that, you know, you include what's needed mm -hmm. and, uh, and help the preprocessor not, you know, gobbling too many bits that you really don't need. Um, there are tools though now in Clang, you know, which could basically give you some information about your include headers and, and things like that. So there are tools that you could use to kind of analyze your projects and find out um, these kind of uh, scenarios. But once done, you know, it's very hard to un undo them, you know, because you have to make sure that there was not unintended effect of that include mm -hmm. that you're relying on. So sometimes yeah, if 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 def really makes that a problem because you it's not it's not a compile error you know yeah. it's just it behaves differently if this yeah. is not defined so yeah absolutely yeah, yeah those so, are great points so you, the first thing is you need to have discipline and start with with a clean architecture mm -hmm. and like you said if if there's boundaries natural boundaries in the system that helps to keep things more contained and you don't have stuff leaking all over the place so that a, a small change here forces everything to rebuild over here. And, and that, that's just good architecture is to have good API boundaries. So, yeah, absolutely. So as, as far as moving on from the basic discipline and, and structure of your code, what are some other technologies that you've seen in the C, C++ space that help us go faster? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think 
there are certain tools that you can deploy, right? So um, one of the tools, or one of, uh, again, the tools is, you know, use parallelism in, in your build, right? So a lot of times software is not buildable in parallel, right? Because they have build race conditions and, you know, mm -hmm. something depending upon something. And, and so a, a fix is make minus J1, right? And what happens with that is nowadays, you know, most of your computers are multi-core, right? So take advantage of that. So basically, you know, one of the tools I would, you know, immediately say is, hey, you know, why can't we build it in parallel if you're not doing it, right? There has to be a reason that there is a serialization point. Uh, then up to that serialization point, we can build everything in parallel and stuff like that. However, you know, the other tools um, that have been around, especially in CC++ world, are for caching. So we talked about pre-processing, and uh, there's a tool called Ccache. Um, Ccache uh, is basically, you know, uh, caching, you know, some of your uh, pre-processed objects, and and also your your build objects. So making sure that if you know it's able to reuse them uh, in your in, in, in your uh, builds again, right? So Ccache definitely helps um, with that. Now, it may have, you know, certain aspects of it that may not be very um, evident, but a lot of times I have seen like, you know, packages fail when Ccache is enabled for them. Um, and in, you have to like, careful that this is another layer that you're adding into your build, mm -hmm. right? So as you layer more stuff, build becomes complex. So you are trading speed with complexity here. That's all I wanted to mention. Sure, there are trade-offs, yeah. Yes, so it's not something that, oh, here is a CMake, let's, you know, uh, enable, uh, you know, the C cache underneath. So, you know, there is a penalty you pay. Um, it's just not for free. And uh, similarly, uh, there was like dist CC in the past, which kind of nowadays is Ice Cream, which is kind of a distributed comp compiler. So if you have like a, a network of computers, uh, you could basically distribute your parallel builds across uh, in a, 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 a distributed kind of a you know, cluster sort of. Uh, this works fine if you, you know, in the past because your disks were slow, you were not really bound by uh, network. You are really bound by I/O, right, and compute. Um, then this is awesome because then if you, you know, have like slow computers sitting on somewhere, just kind of like you know, add them to your node, and they can do some of the work. So ICC basically distributes the build across all these nodes, sends the pre-process objects, it gets compiled over there, brings it over, and then links it on your main system. Mm -hmm. Helps. But in modern days, I think, you know, given you have SSDs and NVMe uh, technologies, you're not really bound by disk anymore. So unless you have like ultra fast, you know, backend network, yeah, like 400 <laughs> gigabits per second or something, some like crazy amount. 
this may not scale mm-hmm. you know into but if you have like your home kind of setup it might be fine because you know you have these computers lying around and you know yeah why not use that mm-hmm. so that's good yeah one of the e- easy ways to scale a build is is to get a faster computer mm-hmm. and i know you have a fast computer and i, I have a i think it's a 12 core amd computer Mm-hmm. So that's 24 virtual cores. Mm-hmm. And, and these systems are really fast in their, for, for parallel stuff anyway. Yeah. And they're really cost effective. I, I think I built mine for like $1,000 or something. So, yeah. you know, yeah. when you look at your time, you spend waiting for stuff. Uh, building yeah. a, a, a workstation designed to build stuff is, is well worth the money oftentimes. Yeah. Yeah. That's well said. Yeah. Actually, I think... Uh, you know, you really don't have to go and buy like a two hundred fifty thousand, you know, blade server, mm-hmm. um, right? But you know, a decent system goes a long way. And you know, I think as a developer, depending on what you do, that might be a very good investment. Um, and and you know, if you kind of like put together an upgradable system, it can kind of last you for many many years, where you can just upgrade, you know, your storage your memory or cpu and and keep going yeah that that's very true i've i've run a number of motherboards through the case i have here and and it's pretty easy these days i mean you buy a motherboard you slap it in there and it just works Mm. you know there aren't jumpers and all kinds of weird things you had to do in times past Mm. but i i would say one more thing about computers you can buy laptops with like huge numbers of cores in them. But what I've been hearing from people is they typically throttle, so you can only get so much performance out of a laptop because you can only get so much heat out of it. Mm. So buying a laptop with a huge pro- huge i9 processor and 24 cores probably really won't get you as far as you think it will because you can't get the heat out of a box that small. Mm. You really need a workstation with a a nice big fan and heat sink and something designed yeah. to run that number of cores. So yeah. anyway, if you want if you want a lot of cores and you want to go fast, you pretty much have a type of box, not a not a laptop. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think if you can kind of like put like uh, liquid cooling over your CPU and then you know put SSDs in there, mm-hmm. your fan never kicks in. It's like yeah, silent killer. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and uh, and I'm really surprised because I was wondering that you know it will generate a lot of fan noise and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So desktops nowadays, you know, they are very quiet, and yeah. So I agree. I think you know for serious builds, you know, it might be worth looking at um, a, a desktop system with like good airflow and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And. Um, um, and I think you know you have to look at it. You're kind of iteratively spending time on it, right? So over a year, you might have saved hours and hours of you know work um, for yourself, and uh, so you can do the the economics of it, and it might turn out to be a good investment, you know, ahead of time. Sure. And I and I find these workstations they they last a good while. I mean, I I use yes. them for five to ten years, and they're still. Yeah. You know, if you have a large number of cores, you know, it, it's still a very effective machine in five years. 
Mm -hmm. So it's so. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely true. And um, um, and, and I think you know if you keep them upgradable, they can last you a lot longer. So mm -hmm. um, you know sometimes if you plan a little bit out ahead of time, you know that might really really keep you like you know at cutting edge for many many years with like minimal investment. Mm -hmm. um, so um, yeah so I think um, say you know if you kind of optimized your hardware um, offering because you know there is money involved in there uh, you want to take advantage of you know all your software technologies that you could do and uh, so we were talking about, you know, all these parallel compiles and, you know, distributed compiles and things like that. And um, over a period of time, I think, you know, we were mainly talking about like CC++ build systems. And, you know, we found that when applications started growing bigger, right, like browsers and others, um, you could do all these technologies, but then um, the time you spent doing linking uh, was kind of like coming to be the bottom. Sure. You might spend so, 10 minutes doing that, huh? Yeah. So, <laughs> and that became important because say you did a modification in a single. So let's say, you know, you spent all your time building your browser and everything is great. And, uh, and of course, like, you know, the incremental builds are bread and butter. Like, so you should definitely have a build system that can be incremental builds. Um, so, I assume that most of them, they are good at that nowadays, whether it is CMake or Mason, others. So I wouldn't worry about that. But the real linking will still happen. Mm -hmm. So now your loop is what, like compiling one file maybe takes you a few seconds, but then linking takes you like 10 minutes, right? And that's after linking, you are now able to test whatever you're doing. So your edit, compile, debug cycle is now 11 minutes or whatever it is. Um, so it'll be good to cut down on your linking time and then and, and go, uh, you know, do that. So a lot of times people use shared libraries, you know, that helps with this because then you're just building one shared library, not the whole thing. But even the shared libraries, in some cases, they may be big. And I mean, I'm again looking at WebKit and others, you know, they may be linked in as, as libraries, but you know, then they are like huge libraries, huge, huge shared libraries. So, um, you know, there was a project uh, called Gold, um, you know, that was started. And you know, one of the problem with talking about GCC toolchain here was that the linker was single threaded. And uh, uh, that's fine because, you know, single threading makes it easy. You know, you're reading the objects in, you're resolving the symbols, and then you do another pass for remaining symbols and you're done, it's it's good. Um, and you don't miss anything and your tool is simple. But then when you have huge binaries to link, then this could be a problem because, you know, that's what, you know, it's doing at the very end. So um, Gold tried uh, to be multi-threaded um, and, you know, it was kind of a project that was primarily um developed by google i believe but um you know it was kind of added to binutils um, and contributed to you know the gcc uh toolchain and um 
earlier, you know, it was touted to be a replacement for, you know, the traditional linker that was there, but the linker has a linker script, right, that you can design what to put where. And the GNU linker had like that script to be very, um, what do you call, programmable, right? So a lot of embedded systems, others, they started using that to, you know, do things with how they want to lay out their binaries and gold could never catch that, right? So there were like a lot of places when you switched gold as your linker and things would break because, you know, it wouldn't do the things that the, the linker did in the past with their linking scripts. And um, so, so it became like a good tool for doing, you know, a single application links, like say linking the browser and things like that, which is still good. So you can have your whole system built with, you know, how you are doing. But then, you know, the applications, which really are large C++ projects, you could use Go Linker. And that really speed up your linking for large C++ applications because of its multi-threaded nature. And uh, there are more tools now. There's the LLD, which is a LLVM project. That's even faster. Um, and uh, and I think uh, there, are, there is uh, another... Um, uh, another linker out there, um, I'm not getting its name right now, but you know, that's even, you know, the numbers look at, that's probably the fastest linker uh, out there, which kind of like shows linking the browser in like few seconds and things like that, some crazy number. Yeah. So we are down from like 10 minutes of link to, you know, less than a minute link, which is a good progress. So in a Yocto build, what percentage of of the build uses the gold linker or some advanced linker versus the standard linker? So um, in Yocto, you, could, you can choose. Mm -hmm. So in Yocto, um, where it is known that you know it won't link with gold linker, the recipes, they basically force the linker to be the traditional linker, mm -hmm. right? So it will demand that I want the BFD linker. And then in some cases, um, you know, it might demand gold linker, but I haven't seen that so much often. But some packages, they probe your system for, hey, do you have a gold linker? If, if you do, then it will use the gold linker. Okay. So if you choose gold to be your distro linker, right, then I think, you know, except few packages, everything else would be able to link with gold. Mm -hmm. um, I don't have number, but it could be as high as like, you know, handful of applications not using Gold Linker, but then everything else uses Gold Linker. Sure. Um, and then LLD is uh, another one which, if you are using Clang and you know compiler, then LLD is a is an option which is kind of in the same you know footsteps as Gold. So in the Yo Yo builds you would enable LLD as the default linker? Yes. Yeah, very good. Yeah. Okay. I would think that, you know, as a default um, a default linking, at least for larger applications, that would make sense. So you would basically want to use LLD, yes. Mm -hmm. And um, you, you may not see, so even the, the traditional linker has gotten better now. So I think, you know, 
gold came out like maybe 10, 12 years ago, even longer probably. Uh, when it started to work, things have changed, you know, in, in ever since, even in the in the BFD linker side. So it's probably not as bad. Um, but you know, if if you kind of like are working in just say in a browser space and things like that, then it's better to make a choice yourself sure. you know, for your application and not really rely on what you know the system is offering you as a default linker, system linker option. Yeah, it's a good thing to be aware of. And mm -hmm. another example where we try to, in the Yo distribution, we try to set good defaults that yeah. are, are the best developer experience and the best best yeah. OS that we can deliver at this particular point in time. True, yeah. So for example, if you build Chromium with your distro, it's going to use Clang with LD mm -hmm. right underneath. So um, so you would see that is the default and you really don't you really don't have to do anything for that to happen. So yeah, so we try to keep like our default options which are um, sane and simple and, and fast and optimal. Okay. So while we're talking about Yocto, what are some other things that, that Yocto does to speed up builds? Yeah, so Yocto has this concept of um, shared state or S state. You might have read about it on mailing lists or other places. And um, so shared state essentially is a snapshot of your build directory for a particular component. So we talked about how Linux systems are put together. Every package is built on its own. And shared state basically takes a snapshot of its build and then puts it together with some metadata around it. Um, and it does that for every package that it is building. And then it puts that into a store. And when you do a rebuild, now it basically does some checksumming and some calculation of hashes. And if, uh, and then it searches those hashes in, in the store. And if it finds a hash match, then that object is used. So it might be that, you know, you're building your image, right? And you didn't make a change and you are, basically having shared state from a server or somewhere, like a feed of shared state, it might not build even a single thing, mm -hmm. right? It might pull all those pre-built objects from the shared state, populate that in your local workspace, and then give out to give the image out to you. So, um, the, so that's basically, you know, the high level what S state is. There's a lot underneath it. It's uh, a very, um, you know, complex uh, piece of software in in uh, in the Yocto uh, tooling space. But what you see is that when you build with Yocto, it creates this shared state folder, and as it builds, it's also taking those objects and putting that into that store. And it's also um, making sure that when you do a rebuild, um, then you can reuse a lot of what you have built previously. And it's very fast from that point of view when you're really building full systems, then this technology really helps because you know most of the time 
if say you are in a setup where you know you have an auto builder or something where shared state can be generated you know overnight or whatever and then everybody you know all their development team can then consume that shared state then you're really really accelerating them because then obviously you know they're not building the whole system you know we were talking at the start of the our conversation about build times so you know they have a good offset mm-hmm. uh, with that yeah so you if one developer has shared state or if you have a common shared state to set up a new build you just copy the shared state directory over and then you can do a build in five minutes so yeah pretty much mm-hmm. yeah i mean you know shared state has a mechanism to set up as a feed server like your mm-hmm. rpm feeds or dev, dev feeds but you really don't need even that um, kind of a you know complex structure. You can just kind of you know share your estate folder, and that should be enough. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and it's kind of a fallback mechanism there. So if it doesn't find it, it will still go and rebuild it. So uh, your builds won't break. But if it finds some matches, then you know it won't rebuild those. So that's awesome. Yeah. What would be kind of cool is like a global shared state where every Yocta developer could, uh, you so, know, pu- yeah. kind of like Nix, where it would pull down the, yeah. the the package if it found it somewhere on the internet. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. You need like a single source of truth for that. So in the yeah. sense that, or a mechanism where I could inject my estate, you could inject your estate mm-hmm. into a common space, or maybe I could expose my estate in you know in a Web three way. Yeah. Um, where, <laughs> you know, if the third person is building, then their build system is able to access my estate and your estate that we decided to expose mm-hmm. and then build a fused view. And then Internet is fast yeah. that it can suck in those, you know, megabytes of data within no time into a local estate of that person. That would be awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So is is the uh, is the actual data stored in SQLite or is it stored outside of SQLite and the database just provides an index? Database just provides an index. Yeah. Okay. So there'll be a bunch of blobs of data in yeah. your shared state directory, right? Yeah. Okay. And uh, I think there's a tool to to which you can run on that shared state folder, which basically keeps it refreshed. So because what happens is when you're like incrementally building over day in day out. The shared, the shared state size may grow quite mm-hmm. a bit. And these tools help you to like discard some of the objects that haven't been used, you know, for... So there are different policies you can choose to discard. And so there's a estate cache management tool also that's up there. You can run that tool, you know, on your workspace. But if you're like building few projects, you know, and you have like one terabyte of hard drive, I wouldn't bother doing that. Sure. Right. You just clean your directory occasionally and yeah. start from scratch. Yeah. 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 Um, so, uh, so I think uh, th- that's actually a very uh, powerful thing. In, in fact, you know, uh, the state is very reliable actually in Yocto. I mean, uh, on and off, you'll see some issues pop up here and there, but you know, more than mostly, it's always like reliable. Um, store you really don't notice it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that covers C plus plus and Yocto and um, 
One of the emphasis we see in some of the new languages like Go and Elm. So this is something I'll ask you because <laughs> I think, you know, you've been basically involved in um, a lot of these more modern languages. And, you know, I would also include Rust in that, you know, the C, C++ gang because um, maybe it's because of the memory checker and that, you know, mm -hmm. sort of stuff, but still like the Rust builds are slow, right? They are not very, very fast. And, uh, I think you could argue that, you know, you are basically borrowing the time that you would otherwise spend uh, on runtime garbage collection, right? And you're doing that statically. So, and then if your application runs for, you know, days and years, then, you know, how many times garbage collection is invoked? Mm -hmm. So you can like do some proration of that time, but <laughs> that's separate from a developer's point of view, you know, it is slow, right? Um, now, so, so I, I'm pretty sure that, you know, that a lot of languages, they move to this new paradigms. And I think I'm hearing a lot of this, that build times are really blazing fast. So I know that you've done stuff with Elm and Go and, um, and also like NPM and other things. So what's your take on like this, how it works? Um, what are like your learnings from Go Elm? Yeah, so Go and Elm, I, I work with those languages a lot in the Simple IoT project. And we ended up with those languages because they reflected the values of the Simple IoT project in itself, in that they're simple mm -hmm. and effective. And so one, one, one way to speed up your build is to use a new language like this. And, uh, you know, I don't know where Zig stands, but maybe it will be fast too. I, I don't really know, but it seems like their values would be similar. Hmm. So what, what Go and Elm have done is they've purposefully kept the language very simple and they resist adding features or, or they're very slow at adding features. Hmm. And what you have with a simple language is you can parse it very quickly. And there's other features like in Go, you can't have circular dependencies. So they, they force you to, to keep your code clean to some extent. Mm. And, then, and then the compiler has built-in knowledge of, of the... Uh, the build tool, you know, it... it Everything's built into the build tools, so there's no separate make tool or or mm. other caching tools that are needed because the build tool itself is very intimately no, aware of the language. It knows what needs rebuilt and what doesn't. You don't mm. need an external tool to do that. The build tool does it itself. Mm. So it's it's not uncommon for pretty large applications to have build times in the in the range of a second or two or even less. Wow. So with with um, both Go and Elm, I always have a process set up that's watching my code and recompiling as it changes. Mm -hmm. um, Go has a built-in unit testing framework, which is, um, again, it, it only tests what changes, so it's very intelligent. See seeing what changed and with elm it's very nice because you can use elm watch to 
to see your changes in real time as you're writing code. And again, the build is so fast that you can just type, boom, you see your change, you can tweak it. And for UI development, the, the fast builds in Elm are, are really nice. Mm-hmm. And ironically, it, it's um, Elm is a compiler. It compiles to JavaScript, but it's generally faster than any of the JavaScript solutions out there that, that do, you know, the bundlers like Parcel or, um, mm-hmm. you know, the the bundlers that take big gobs of JavaScript and, and put yeah. it all together. Yeah. So anyway, that's my experience. It's it's really nice, and sometimes mm-hmm. I feel like you just need to start over. Yeah. Take what you've learned and... and mm-hmm. So do you see any any similarities or any advantages of the managed module systems, the ecosystems um, that, you know, these these uh, languages have? Um, because, you know, you have uh, a lot of modules, right? So nowadays you start off and then you start pulling in those modules one by another and, and bring them in. So do you see any advantage of that kind of a system? for kind of like, you know, build acceleration as well? Or is that just something not uh, an advantage? Yeah, at least in the Go space, you pull it in, it gets compiled once, and then it's done. It never touches it again. And that's cached Mm -hmm. in in like a global area for your user account. Mm -hmm. So you can even have multiple Go projects, and if they pull in the same version of a Go module, It'll mm. just be there, ready to use. Just like a Nick store, then. Yeah, exactly. Your own personal. <laughs> <laughs> and I read recently that the Go comp- the Go language used to deliver part of the runtime compiled, but they're no longer even doing that now. Mm-hmm. And the so the download size for installing Go is smaller. Mm. And as soon as you need something, it builds that piece, and then it's it's there. It's done. So. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think it's. Um, I know that like a lot of times, developers, you know, they have um, this set of tools that they work through, and I think in traditionally uh, with C and C plus um, plus, you know, it has kind of like you go from one to another to another, and like you have all these things, they line up your workflow. And um, with with Go and Elm, do you see that there is a homogeneity in there that you have like all these tools under one umbrella, and then that helps the whole process and accelerates your uh, your build loop? Yeah, n- not as much because again, the com- the compiler and the build tool is built into the language, so mm. so generally you don't need anything else to get a basic build. Okay. So where we see most of the work in tooling in the Go and Elm ecosystem is is around CI and static checking and ju- just a whole raft of really nice tools that um, r- really make your code nice. Mm-hmm. You know, bo- both the Go and the Elm ecosystems have very advanced tools for um, yeah for ensuring code quality. So what I've seen in in these e- is in these systems is, you know, people aren't aren't spending any time on build time because it's a problem that's mostly solved. Mm. So they're 
the tooling efforts are all focused on improving quality beyond build mm -hmm. time. I see. Yeah, that's so. a good point. And I think uh, what I hear you say is that it's about um, reuse and mm -hmm. not rebuild. Yeah. And and I guess, you know, if you look from traditionally, you know, people use like distributions like Gentoo and others where like, mm -hmm. you compile it locally. And, and, and nowadays, I think, you know, it's more like move to, I mean, Gentoo is still around, but uh, there are distributions like Arch and all, which basically offers you pre-built uh, packages uh, for a traditional Linux distribution mechanism style. Um, and I guess that's what you're, what I'm hearing you say is, is a kind of an inbuilt into, you know, the Go um, system. Right, right, exactly. Mm. Cool. So, um, yeah, so I think uh, there is also one aspect, um, you know, I'm kind of like talking about build systems here. And we did touch base on, you know, what the recommendations should be for building your build machine. Um, but a lot of times, um, you know, people kind of start doing Yocto builds and, and then they run into this build problems or issues. Um, one of the things that Yocto does is, you know, it builds so there's a, your package parallelism, right? So you're compiling the thing in say my, make minus J16, right? And you said, I have eight cores, make minus J16, great, right? But Yocto has another kind of a dimension to parallelism, which is packages. So it basically divides them into various tasks. So you may have your image consisting of 100 packages so it builds a tree for how to build, how to sequence these 100 packages in parallel. And then starts building from the leaf side. So now what happens is it could be that if you said, you know, give me a parallelism of J16 and give me a task parallelism of 16, right? So that means it could be running 16 different tasks at a given point of time. And it could be all 16 tasks are compiled tasks. So are you telling me this is 16 times 16? Exactly. <laughs> so now <laughs> that's how many parallel compiled jobs are running, right? Yeah. And obviously you are going to get like, you know, ooms and whatnot. And uh, a lot of times those error messages are not very, very clear unless like you really look into your core dump CTL or something like that. Hey, mm -hmm. what dumped the core or, you know, it did ooms got triggered in and did it kill something. And so oom um means out of memory handler of in the memory Linux kernel handles. where the kernel yeah. just starts killing processes that are using gobs of memory. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. And um, so, um, so I've come to this, you know, general maths that I usually find, you know, useful, but especially with Yocto wheels is that say, you know, you got a machine, right? It has four cores, right? Then minimum you should have 16 gig of RAM. So uh, you can keep multiplying. And so four gig per core is actually something that will uh, never get into, into this situation where, you know, the O's killer mm -hmm. comes in and starts kind of, you know, knocking off your bills. And um, if you don't do that, 
the other option is to tweak your uh, build parameters. So actually there is some work that has gone into BitBake now, which basically is sensitive to the um, system pressure nowadays. But I think I'm not sure whether it has made into a release yet, but maybe it made, it made it into the last release. But uh, that's basically trying to use some of the Linux um, tooling or Linux, you know, infrastructure underneath to find out, you know, how the system is doing and it won't issue a new job until, you know, the pressure falls below a certain limit and things like that. So it might get better mm -hmm. uh, with, with that in future, but uh, but again, I think you want to build a machine for the job, then, you know, general recommendation around that is, you know, have four gig of memory available per core. Yeah. So it doesn't make any sense to buy a 32 core machine and only have 32 gig of RAM because you'll mm -hmm. exhaust RAM before you. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. In that case, I think you basically limit your parallelism to like minus J4 or something like that or J8, something like that. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good to know. We'll definitely put that in the show notes. Mm -hmm. So anything else yet you wanna, want to want to share about this? Yeah. Or? I think that's all for today. I, you know, I can talk about these topics day in, day out. Mm -hmm. And um, so if there are like, you know, other interesting aspects that you'd like to, us to explore, please, uh, you know, provide your feedback and uh, we'll be happy to research that and provide you more readouts on those. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. And until next time.